Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, November 7th, 2021, and this is show number 861. This week, I had Chris Ashley and Rod Simmons on Chit Chat Across the Pond. Now, you may know these guys from the SMR podcast they do with Rob Dunwood, or you may remember them from their frequent appearances on Chit Chat Across the Pond by themselves to talk tech. Now, I had them on to talk about a very special topic, and I invited Steve to be on the show, too. They have a brand new podcast called Barbecue and Tech. Now, Steve is the one who is really enjoying the show because he's learning to barbecue from them through Barbecue and Tech, and I am just the beneficiary on the whole eating part. It was an absolute blast. These guys are hilarious together. They've known each other forever and ever, literally since they were like five or six years old. And uh, getting to hear them talk about how to barbecue and the tech behind barbecuing was really, really fun. I'm afraid they might have spoiled some of their shows because they did teach us and talked a lot about the things that they've done. So uh, in any case, you can check out their show at bbqandtech.com, but I highly recommend listening to Chit Chat Across the Pond 704 which of course you can find in your podcatcher of choice. Last week, I gave you a set of tiny tips from Helma about how to take advantage of the path bar and finder windows. I explained that I used to use the proxy icon to drag into terminal windows to avoid typing the path to a directory, and the path bar icon will give me back that functionality. To refresh your memory at the top of every finder window, you'll see the name of the current directory. Before macOS Big Sur, there was a tiny icon to the left called the proxy icon. In macOS Big Sur, Apple decided it would be way more awesome if they hid that icon and it only appeared if you hovered near the directory title or if you clicked on the title. The whole reason I'm bringing this up again is that shortly after I published the podcast episode including this tip, my inbox and feeds were flooded with people telling me that Marco Arment had discovered a very hidden way to return the proxy icon to permanent status. Marco explained in a tweet that if you open up System Preferences and navigate to the Accessibility Preference pane and then select Display in the left sidebar, you'll see a checkbox that says Show Window Title Icons. Huzzah! Proxy icons are back. Now, I'll still be using Helma's pathbar tricks for some of the functionality, but having the proxy icon back at the top of the window is fantastic. And one reminder, this is only in macOS Monterey. So when you're done testing the waters to make sure it's safe, come enjoy our beloved proxy icons. Well, speaking of that proxy icon and using it to drag into a terminal window, we got a tiny tip this week from Frank Voss that makes this actually not necessary at all. So I got to warn you, when I first started reading his idea, my first thought was, this is going to be way more complicated than just dragging the proxy icon to change directory into the same directory where I am in the finder over in the terminal. But I got to tell you, when I got to the end of his tip, I realized that it's easy and it's magical when you're done. So the problem to be solved is that you have a finder window open right where you need to work in terminal. At the top level, you're going to enter four lines into a script, save it with a name, give it a cute icon, and then drag it into the toolbar of the finder window. After you're done, when you're in a folder in the Finder that you want to open in Terminal, all you do is click that cute icon and boom, you're in Terminal in that directory. Okay, so now that you know how easy it is, work with me here. First, he says, launch the script editor application. That's buried in application slash utilities. By the way, I looked for Apple script editor and that's not what it's called. I thought maybe it was, <laughs> they didn't have it in, in uh, Monterey anymore. So it's called script editor. Anyway, 
you enter four lines to get to the current path in Finder, open the terminal, and open that directory. Now, I'm not going to read it out here, but it basically just says, tell application Finder, set the directory to the path, and uh, do a shell script that opens the terminal to that same path of that current directory, and then it says ntel. It is literally four lines in a script. All you got to do is copy and paste it into the script editor. So once you've entered that little bit of code, you can save it out of script editor as an application. Frank named his openterminal.app. Now, as a side note, Frank is from the Netherlands, and so his screenshots that are in the show notes are in Dutch. And I think that's really cool because by comparing my Save As dialog box to his, I have learned that options is opties in Dutch. And even better, show startup screen is, let's see if I can get this, Toon Openingsvenster. How fun is that? Well, anyway, back to Frank's instructions. He provided a cute blue icon file for us with the classic prompt logo on it. Now, I'm adding it to the show notes as a zip file because .icns files get weird sometimes when you need to send them around. You can use your own icon file or even a plain PNG if you're not comfortable downloading a zip from a website, even though I can tell you this one's going to be fine, but it's a good idea to always be careful. In any case, once you have the icon file you like, select your shiny new open terminal app and select Get Info from the file menu. This will show you the generic script icon at the top. Drag your cute icon file on top of it, and now your app has that cute icon. The last step is what makes it really magical. Open any Finder window, hold down the Command key, and drag the app with its cute icon up into the Finder toolbar and drop it when it's positioned where you want it. Everything up there is going to kind of wiggle around until you let go. Ready to test? You can now click on the icon of the app that's available on every Finder window, and a terminal window will be instantly opened with the directory that's displayed in the Finder. I love Frank's tip because it took me maybe 30 seconds to set it up, and now I will forever have it available at my fingertips. And I learned a little bit of Dutch along the way. Thank you so much, Frank, for taking the time to figure this out, share it with us, and give us these detailed, inf- detailed instructions. Last week, I gave you a few early musings on the M1 Max Max that uh, Steve and I got, and this week I'd like to give you a few more of my musings. There's nothing super unexpected, but there's so many little things that have delighted me. I finally got a chance to do a couple of speed tests. Now, my baseline machine is a 2019 16-inch Intel quad-core i9 with 64 gigabytes of RAM, so no slouch on its own. The new machine is a 2021 M1 Max 14-inch with a 10-core CPU and 32-core GPU and 64GB of RAM. So the most impressive test was transcoding my latest video tutorial for Screencast Online. The native ScreenFlow file was just under a terabyte, and I exported it to an MP4. The Intel machine took just under 19 minutes to transcode and export the file, and the M1 Max took a little under 9 minutes, so it went from 19 minutes down to 9 minutes. Now, if my ciphering is correct, that means the M1 Max was 114% faster than the Intel, or slightly more than twice as fast as the Intel. Now, if time is money for you, that's an impressive, uh, impressive number. Now, a few people were asking after they read the blog post about this, why, uh, how did I calculate the speed? And so I'm going to give you a math explanation because I know that David Roth would be really sad if I didn't do some math. So we, Steve and I actually sat down and talked about how you calculate the word faster. So, you know, we both have masters in engineering, and yet it still took us about a half hour debating how to correctly calculate this. Now, we didn't just compare the times of the operations because speed should be something per time not just time. 
For the video rendering uh, calculation, we worked with render the video in X time. So that's our operation per time. And uh, so you actually end up having to take the inverse of how long everything took. So it'd be like one over 19 minutes and one over nine minutes, and then compared the two of those in order to get that 114% faster. Okay, let's get into some more generic conversations about speed. A nice little surprise really is how fast applications launch. For the most part, they weren't slow before, but because they launch so quickly now, I gotta say I'm more likely to quit and reopen them than I am to just leave everything running. I always blamed my giant photos library, 86,260 as of the time that I wrote this up, for why photos took so long to launch. But on the M1 Max, it opens so fast that I don't mind quitting and reopening it. This got me to thinking, if you're trying to choose a configuration for a new M1 and you're waffling between RAM sizes, and the reason you want more RAM is because you like to keep a lot of apps running concurrently, maybe you don't need as much RAM if you can quit and reopen them super fast. If your RAM needs are because you run high-end application with giant files, then this observation obviously has no bearing on your decision. Now, the race for the slowest app to launch on my computers is between all of the Affinity products, Affinity Photo, Affinity Designer, and Affinity Publisher. They're all up against Excel. Now, it's possible all of the Office 365 apps are just as slow, but I only install Excel, so I can't speak definitively on that. Affinity Designer launches 116% faster on the M1 Max than it did on the Intel, which matches pretty close to the 114% improvement in video transcoding observation. Now here's the bad news. On the M1 Max, Affinity Designer still took 19 seconds to launch. That is a lot of dock bounces. Now it's better than the nearly 39 seconds it took on my Intel machine, but still, that's way too long. I ran some tests with similar results on Affinity Photo, and I sent them to Serif, the makers of the Affinity products, asking them, you know, what gives? I got a very quick and more importantly, encouraging response back from Dan at Serif. He wrote, our developers have identified a change within macOS that started in Big Sur and has been carried to Monterey. This was a security change in Apple's system that affects how just-in-time, also known as JIT runtime apps, are checked. And Affinity currently uses the JIT runtime method. We're currently working to hopefully release a beta version shortly that will no longer use this method, and this should hopefully resolve the slow loading time of the apps for our customers. Okay, so while that's hopeful, it does bother me that they've gone over a year now with this abysmal launch time and have only now figured out, hopefully, how to fix it. I offered to beta test it, and hopefully they'll take me up on it. Now, while Affinity Products did win the contest for slowest apps to launch, Excel did take an impressive second place. It takes 15 seconds to launch on the Intel Mac and around 7 seconds on the M1 Max. Now that speed up with the M1 Max was 118% faster, which is curiously right in line with the other two measurements. But still, seven seconds to launch on one of the fastest Macs on the planet? What gives Microsoft? I wish I knew somebody there to write to. Well, there's another category of apps that is still really slow to launch, and that's some Electron apps. As you may already know, Electron is a technology to provide cross-platform support with essentially web apps. My observation on speed proves that it can be done well, it can be done okay, or it can be done poorly. 1Password is an example of how to do it right, because 1Password launches instantaneously on the M1, and all operations using the app are just lickety-split. 
They say it has something to do with their development using REST, but all I know is it's speedy. Now, my development environment is Visual Studio Code, and it's pretty darn fast to launch as well. But Get Kraken, one of the version control apps I use when coding, is like watching grass grow when you wait for it to finish opening up a repo. Now, I use Fulge for documentation with screenshots and annotation and text, and it's kind of in the middle in terms of launch performance. It's not snappy, but I don't want to go take a walk around the block while I wait, it to wait for it to launch either. Now, Joplin, my new favorite note-taking app, is a little sluggish, but it's okay. I can stand it. So there are good Electron apps, there are bad Electron apps. So blaming the technology alone is probably not valid. Maybe it's harder to do a good one. But it was interesting to me that switching to this new hardware didn't substantially affect the performance of the sluggish ones. When Apple announced the new 14 and 16-inch MacBook Pros, they went on and on and on about the new display. I don't know about you, but when they do that, my eyes kind of glaze over as they yammer on about 1,000 nits of sustained brightness, 1,600 nits of peak brightness, 10,000 mini-LEDs, 1 million to 1 contrast ratio, and a billion colors. What I hear is blah, 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 it's amazing. Well, to combat this spec fatigue, Apple is very good at coming up with marketing terms that are memorable. Remember years ago when they talked about going to higher resolution and our ears kind of glazed over as they described it, but then they called it retina? We scoffed at the term at first, but the term really stuck, and we could tell at a glance what was a retina display and what was not. During the Unleashed event, they referred to the display on the new M1 Pro and Max Max as Liquid Retina XDR. That got me very excited, because Liquid Retina XDR is what they call the very expensive Pro Display XDR. I was skeptical at these new laptops that they would really look as good as that. Now, I'm not a display fanatic, but since I have a Pro Display XDR, because my husband is crazy, I can make some comparisons. Remember buried in the stream of tech specs about the new MacBook Pros that they talked about nits of brightness and peak brightness? That's one place I can describe a, a difference to you. The 2019 16-inch MacBook Pro has 500 nits of brightness. The M1 Max has 1,000 nits of brightness, and if the display preferences are set to P3-1600 nits, that means it will go to a peak of 1600. Okay, that still sounds like a pile of specs. What is the real-world case where you would see the difference? The peak brightness is only reached on high dynamic range content, and it hits 1600 nits only on the highlights of the photo or video. Now, I brought up a photo I took with my iPhone 13 Pro on the Intel and M1 Max side-by-side. Side. The image is of a water droplet on a leaf, and there's a bright area in the center of the water droplet. On the 14-inch M1, that area of light is far brighter than it is on the previous screen, and it looks kind of gray and bland on that 500-nit screen of the Intel machine. It doesn't look bad on the older screen, but it really pops on the new one. The effect is even more dramatic in video. If you have an iPhone 10 or later, you can capture and view HDR video. If you have your phone set to light mode, when you look at photos or videos that are not full screen, you'll see white bars on the sides or top and bottom. When you start playback of an HDR video, suddenly that video kind of pops out at you and gets super bright. The white bars will look like the phone actually turned them gray. In fact, it's your, your brain probably won't believe that they didn't get darkened, but it's an optical illusion because the white parts of your video playback are just so much brighter. The same effect happens now on the M1 Pro Max, M1 Pro and Max Mac displays. The other day I was in our dimly lit TV room and I brought up an HDR video I had taken on the iPhone, but I brought it up on my new Mac and it lit up the entire room. 
I am not joking. I saw the light go everywhere. It was so bright. I showed Steve the effect, flipping from some normal photos in my library to this HDR video, and he was amazed at the brightness as well. Now, I was hoping to report on how amazing ProMotion is on the new Mac. That's Apple's marketing term for an adjustable refresh rate up to 120 hertz. I sat there for quite a while, scrolling up and down on both of my laptops side by side, and I got to tell you, I couldn't tell the difference. It wasn't until Saturday that I found out that according to 9to5Mac, most apps don't support ProMotion yet, including Safari, which is what I was using to try to tell the difference. Now, I still have a dollar that says I won't be able to tell the difference even when it is available on Safari. What I should notice on the new M1 Max is the higher screen resolution. It went from 227 pixels per inch up to 254 ppi. But even with my bionic human-made lens eyes, I still can't tell the difference. The Pro Display XDR is only 218 ppi, but I can't see the difference in jagged edges on crisp text between the 2019 16-inch, the XDR, and the 2021 14-inch. Maybe I'm just not worthy of these displays. One minor place where the, uh, the M1s outperform in the display area is how quickly they can change display preferences. If you connect a second display to your Mac, you'll often want to rearrange the positioning of the displays with respect to each other. On an Intel Mac, when you drag one representation of a display to a new position and let go, both of the displays will turn black for a second, maybe even longer, and then they come back in their new position. With an M1, the regular M1, the Pro, or the Max, there is simply no black screen blink. It just changes the positions. The first time I did it, I had only made a minor adjustment, and I thought it didn't work because I didn't see it turn black. I know this isn't a huge deal, but how many times have you had the displays arranged almost correctly, but you put up with a corner where your cursor didn't slide over and it would get stuck just because the process of fixing it was a little bit annoying? One of the more minor upgrades with the Pro Max configurations is the new camera system. While it only went from 720p to 1080p, Apple touted it as a much bigger improvement than the resolution alone would imply. The new camera system has a wider aperture combined with a larger image sensor, both of which mean it should have better low-light performance. With more light, it should get less noise in the image. Now, you can identify noise by it's that smudgy look you can get in darker areas, and you'll see it in weird-looking colored dots where a single-color surface should be seen. Additionally, Apple said in their press release, Apple's customer, I'll get this right yet, Apple's custom image signal processor, along with the neural engine, uses computational video to enhance image quality for sharper video and more natural-looking skin tones on the built-in camera. Well, it was time for a comparison of the camera on the cameras on my two laptops. As a quick test, I set up my studio lighting and I took the same photo with my 2019 16-inch Intel MacBook Pro and my M1 Max, both using Photo Booth as the application to take the photo. There is no question that the new camera system and associated signal processing is dramatically better. The exposure is much better on the new camera, allowing you to see fine details in my hair along with the varied colors of my hair from dark brown to auburn to gray. The older camera only captured a continuous brown blob with one gray highlight. Sadly, both cameras seemed equally capable at capturing the wrinkles in my neck and face. The vertical blinds behind me in the photo should be a rather continuous tan color, but the older camera is very noisy in the form of lots of purple and green dots. You can also see that same color noise in the chair back behind me. 
the new camera more accurately captured the color tone as well. In the older camera, my blue shirt is dark and saturated, which might be a pleasing color to some, but it's not the true color of my shirt. The older camera shows the right side of my face with a dark shadow, but the new camera adapted much better to the slightly off-center balance of my lighting setup, leaving my face far less shadowed. Now, when Bart looked at these photos, he also pointed out something I hadn't even noticed the first time. There's a light behind me, and in the older camera, it's just completely blown out. It looks like a, a square with bright light on it. And in the uh, second photo from the new camera, you can actually see kind of a, a gradation of light within the lampshade. So it, it's definitely getting better dynamic range as well. So across the board, I would say the new camera, while only 1080p, is a massive improvement. Now, I've been lucky enough to have Touch ID on my MacBook Pro for the last couple of years, but it hasn't been as reliable as I would have hoped. I've always assumed it was because I have relatively dry fingers, so a slight lick of my finger would allow me to actually unlock my Mac, unlock one password, and sometimes it would even allow me to authenticate for Apple Pay. I did find myself using my Apple Watch to unlock and pay because it was much more reliable. Now, I'm not sure what they did differently on Touch ID for the new Macs because they didn't really tout it, but so far, it has been a lick-free experience. One time in the last few weeks, it didn't respond the first time I tried it, and even then, I didn't have to lick, I just tried it again and it worked. It's so reliable now that I authenticate with Touch ID faster than I, do, than I can on my Apple Watch, so that's been my, my authentication method of choice. Speaking of the keyboard, I truly love it. I was a big fan of the very last butterfly keyboard Apple put into their laptops. Two years and 11 months into AppleCare on my 2016 MacBook Pro, the battery swelled and broke the keyboard and trackpad, so Apple had to repair it at their expense. The keyboard they supplied me in October of 2019, so it's a 2016 MacBook Pro, but it had the October 2019 keyboard, it was fantastic. I actually wasn't a big fan of the scissor switch keyboard they introduced in 2019 because it took a lot more effort to push the keys. Now, keyboards are very personal preference, so I am not saying the keyboard on the 14-inch MacBook Pro is better than the keyboards on the other ones, but I personally prefer it to the 2019. I find I'm choosing to type directly on it more often, even when I have my beloved Magic Keyboard sitting right next to it. Now, there's one more delight with the keyboard. There's a dedicated emoji key, just like on iOS keyboards. Maybe emoji don't blow your dress up, but I'm trying to be like the cool kids and use them from time to time. Now, I find the one I use most frequently is the facepalm emoji every time I do something dumb. I found it very tedious before to scroll through the emoji to find the right one on my 2019 MacBook Pro, even with touch bar there to help. Now, I did notice something else interesting. With my Magic Keyboard connected over uh, Bluetooth to the new MacBook Pro, just instinctively, I hit the function key on that keyboard, and it brought up the uh, it brought up the functionality of emoji. So it's actually the function key on both that uh, does give you the uh, the emoji keyboard. So I thought that was really an interesting uh, little effect, just a surprise that I found. Now, on my previous Mac, I installed a great little app that you might want to look into called Rocket, and that let me use a trigger character and then start an inline search for emoji. I also experimented with using the keyboard viewer and switching to emoji, but that was a little bit tedious. Now with the new Mac, I can hit the emoji key and it automatically launches the keyboard viewer right to emoji search so I can instantly type in the nerdy glasses emoji whenever I need it. That makes the price of the new MacBook Pro totally justifiable, am I right? 
Well, this next bit has nothing to do with the model of computer I moved to, but more about the process of moving to a new computer. You know, I'm a big fan of the nuke and pave process around once a year just to clean out cruft, and I always do a pure pave when I go to a new computer. By pave, I mean don't use Migration Assistant to move over my apps and settings, and in my case, I don't even let it move my data. I drag my data over manually. Doing a clean pave on your first Apple Silicon Mac is really important because the last thing you'd want to do is bring over a bunch of Intel native apps when universal versions that run natively on the M1 architecture probably exist. You could end up running the Rosetta 2 emulation mode when you could have the light speed of a native app. Sure, you can upgrade after you move, but that means leaving Cruft around and wasted effort trying to figure out which ones can be native. Now, as always, I've been using my mind map of Doom, trademark Donald Burr, to install all of my apps from scratch and do all of my configuration changes to get things exactly the way I like them. I know this takes a long time, but it helps me know my system inside and out. I do a lot of weird stuff on my Mac, so it takes longer than it would for normal people, but I still really enjoy the process. The main reason I don't even use Migration Assistant to move my data is because of my giant photos library that I mentioned earlier. I'm following a process developed with the help of Apple Sport many years ago. I used to drag my photos library over to the new Mac, but then iCloud Photo Library would have to check every single photo to see if it had the original yet. The checking process takes far more time than the download process. This would take more than three weeks, and more importantly, it would not import any new photos I took with my iPhone during that entire three plus weeks. Apple taught me not to drag the library over, but instead to simply start with optimized images. When that's complete in a day or two, they told me then turn on full-sized images. With good bandwidth, this is a firehose of file downloads. This takes the three-week process down to a matter of days. This time through the process, the optimized image downloads seem to take longer than it has in the past. It's kind of tricky these days to figure out how to force the Mac to stay awake 24-7, which has contributed to the longer-than-expected download time. There is no energy saver preference pane, so I'm learning the new battery preference pane with only limited success. I did get all of the optimized images down in about five days, which is longer than I liked. I can live with it since I can play with my library while it churns away in the background. If I need an old photo, I can still scroll to the time period where I think the image is and start clicking on the blank squares to force specific images to come down. I've switched to the full-size image download in iCloud Photo Library Preferences, and they started coming down very quickly as expected. It should have been done in the usual three days, but it seems to have stalled late on the second day, and it hasn't been changing, so now I get to diagnose that pesky problem. I got it to start up again by rebooting, but it seems to have paused again. It's almost exactly halfway through, so that should keep me entertained for a little bit, don't you think? Well, the bottom line is that I'm still besotted with this new Mac, and I'm so very glad that I downsized to 14 inches. I carried around the house so much more than I ever did the 16-inch, just because it's so light and small. Because I have a big screen to attach to when I need real estate, I literally do not miss the 16-inch size at all. I love typing on it, so it's stealing time from my beloved 12.9-inch iPad Pro as my couch device, too. Now, here's a bonus prize. I used to have to very carefully position my 16-inch on the 12th South stand on my desk so that the boom arm of my bike didn't crash into the top of it when I swung it in position. With the 14-inch, I've got a good 3 inches of clearance, so I don't have to be quite so careful. I have literally found not found one single thing to dislike on the new Mac and everything to love about it.
I'd like to take a pause in celebrating our longtime patrons to give a big high five to Greg H. Greg has been supporting the show through Patreon for two and a half years at a generous amount, but this week he actually increased his pledge. That means so much to me because it means he actively thought about the value of the content he gets through the PodFeed podcast, and he thought to himself, you know what? That's worth, worth even more than I thought. How cool is that? If you'd like to increase your support like Greg H., or just start showing your support, please head on over to podfeed.com Patreon and sign up to help the show. This week, I attended the fall version of Pepcom, and I had the great pleasure of meeting Dave Nickel, CEO of a company called Posio, and they have some really interesting products that I think solve a real problem. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thanks, Allison. Great to be here. I appreciate it. Well, like I said, we like to uh, start with the problem to be solved here, and that's exactly where you started your pitch to me during Pepcom. So uh, why don't you tell me what problem are you attacking here? Yeah, at, at a high level, just for some context, I think that the thing to think about is for folks have been afforded all kinds of convenience uh, through smart technology, whether that be uh, listening devices such as smart speakers, smartphones, and our ability to voice interact uh, with the internet and, and get all kinds, of, uh, all kinds of interesting information and data in real time uh, seamlessly has, has been a great convenience. Uh, I'm a huge fan of it. I enjoy it a lot. The other side of that coin is it's done at the expense of giving up a pretty significant chunk of our privacy, which has been well-documented. Uh, there's no shortage of articles and and uh, incidents and accidents that have have gone on over the past few years, and and uh, it's a, it's an area that we see consumers and businesses having high concerns about. So the the challenge is how do we how do we actually continue to enjoy these things and and stop having this uneasy get get rid of this uneasiness that a large <laughs> number of people not everybody but a large number of people have. Uh, around how they interact with those devices. So, so you're saying we we, we we don't completely trust the companies to obey that mute button on the top. Well, to be honest, I I feel quite comfortable when you press the mute button that they're indeed muting. I I don't think that anybody's nefariously saying, "Hey, when you when you push that button, we're still going to bypass it and listen to you." Uh, my pers- that's my personal belief. Um, I don't have any any evidence to think that that is going on, and so I'm 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 okay with all of that. I think that the real issue is that for them to function properly, they have to be perpetually listening, just simply for their awake word. And and as you know, uh, they you know lots of companies out there have been using uh, different phrases and and uh, interactions with these devices, recording them, uh, tearing them apart, using them uh, through AI to and machine learning to increase the performance of these devices. And there have been leaks and data breaches. And once your information's in the cloud, it's very, very difficult to find a way to get that back. And that's that's a real challenge for for many people, many consumers, and certainly for businesses. If you think about terms of healthcare, uh, uh, you know, uh, private finance or uh, banking, and, oh, yeah. and other areas, real estate that require lots of trust, uh, where you're having caught, you know. Con- uh, confidential and intimate conversations with one other person uh, in your home or over over a phone that these devices could be picking up and listening in is, is quite disturbing for a lot of people. So what I like is that you're you're trying to thread the needle between uh, retaining our privacy and yet still being able to play with the new cool toys, right? Absolutely. Not because not, you can make it work by not having one, <laughs> or like you say Correct. by having it muted, but then you can't actually use it. But what your your product does is is uh, might allow us to do both. Exactly. And and not only do both, but do both in a convention that we're all used to. So, you know, our device responds and has its own wake word built in via firmware. There's no memory. We're not internet connected. We can't be hacked. Um, so we're an independent layer sitting over top 
in literally physically over top of your smart devices uh, in your home, a smart speaker, for example. And so uh, why don't, why don't you jump to that? Uh, because I do want you to repeat some of what you just said of, of you've, you're talking about physical devices. Describe what one of them looks like. Great. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, I need to be aware that, as you mentioned earlier, that we're dealing with a, a, a audio audience and not video. So I'll, I'll uh, try and describe what we've got here. So if you can picture a small platform that your smart speaker would sit on with a, a little post behind it and something that looks like a halo just floating above your smart device, uh, that halo as soon as you plug POSIO in, is bombarding your smart device with a sub, uh, sub-audible acoustic frequency that effectively defeats the mics on your device. So you simply put your device on the platform. You don't have to do any programming, no registration, uh, no internet connectivity. There's nothing. We're like a bike lock uh, <laughs> for your device. Oh, that's and a really so, good description. Yeah. And the, and the good news is the default state of POSIO is active. So once you plug it in and put your smart device there, if you want to know if POSIO is working, simply say, I always use Karen. We, we built a dummy smart device called Karen. So I'll call her Karen. And I'm sorry to all the Karens out there. We, we love you too. The, uh, you simply say, hey, you know, if you said, hey, Karen, hey, Karen, Karen wouldn't hear you because she literally, that device is being bombarded and the mics actually can't pick up any, any audio. So you're using Karen as the generic phrase for S lady, A lady, and G man. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. So we, so we don't, we certainly don't want to lever our, our uh, product off of other people's brands and goodwill. So we're, we're here to provide an independent layer and, and that's, that's really the key. So you, you so, stick yeah, you your, say, your smart device into the, onto this platform with the halo above it. It, as soon as POSIO is plugged in, it's jamming the, the audio, uh, into the microphones. Correct. And then if you say, Hey, Karen, she doesn't answer because she literally Nothing. can't hear because somebody's going into her or something like that. Yeah. So somebody referred to it recently as sonic earmuffs, which I thought was kind of clever, oh, I um, like it. but that's okay. really, that is a pretty effective way. If you think of a force field, if you watch you know, Star Trek back in the day, this idea that something is just, you know, invisibly going over top and covering this thing. It's a blanket. And anytime you want to know if POSIO is working, just try it. Say, Hey, Karen, Hey, Karen. And if your device doesn't respond, then you know, it's not, it can't hear you. Okay. But you said we still get to play with our devices. So how do I get to play with my, my Karen if, uh, if you're, you're jamming the audio? Yeah, great. Uh, this is, this is the fun part of this. You're used to saying, Hey, Karen, and you just say, what's the weather? Now all you have to do is POSIO stop. Hey, Karen, what's the weather? And everything else from there is normal. POSIO goes into a 30 minute sort of uh, pause cycle uh, where you just interact with your smart speaker, ask a follow on question, whatever you like. You'll hear a, you'll see a light ring at the top of POSIO slowly counting down. And you'll know that when that light ring is counting down, that POSIO is not active and your speaker can hear you. So that's when you want to temper what you say uh, or just have, you know, specific requests for your speaker that your, or your phone. We'll talk about that in a second. uh, I think you, you I think you meant 30 seconds that it's active, right? Not 30 minutes. Oh, sorry. 30 seconds. Pardon me. Yes. yes. <laughs> Real we do slow have a button. Down. Yeah, we do actually have a button where you can pause it for as long as you want. So if you want okay. to have a long conversation, a phone or a lot of series of interactions, you can just touch the button on top of ours and it effectively shuts it off. And as soon, the moment you turn it, touch that button, it's instantly active. The, the really good thing about it is, again, key is we're not internet connected, can't be hacked. And because our firmware is on board and only knows how to do one thing, which is here, a simple command, pause you, stop. There's no latency at all. So okay. you're able to just go pause you, stop. Hey, Karen, immediately, it's, it's the second you finish pause you, stop, you can just keep going right into your interaction with your smart device and there's no delay whatsoever. Okay, so now let's say I've got it, uh, pause is active, my smart speaker can't hear me, 
But um, so I, I tell Karen, or I, let's see, I tell Pazio to let me talk to Karen and I tell right. her to play some music and then Pazio yes. goes back into effect. My music still plays? Absolutely. This is a one-way solution. So, you know, you've asked your speaker to do something. We don't care what comes out of it. That's none of our business. What our business is, is to make sure the wrong things don't go into it intentionally or accidentally. So yeah, your speaker interaction is all normal. Nothing is affected there. Sound performance, this absolutely no effect at all. So I'm just uh, just spitballing here, but I'm guessing that the actual uh, noise cancellation is your secret sauce that you've probably got patented. So I won't ask too deep of a question, but I'm I'm curious if you've got uh, an Apple HomePod Mini and a a tall uh, Echo, uh, tall Amazon Echo. Sure. How do you how does your device know where those microphones are to shove sound into? Yeah, Does so we've tested hundreds. Yeah, we've tested hundreds of smart speakers, and, and we have a couple of sizes of these. Uh, these basically the pole size, the height, the height of the device changes to accommodate about eighty-two percent of smart speakers on the market today. And so we've we've engineered uh, part part of the uh, part of the secret sauce is how we've actually shaped that sound and how it how it deals with different mic arrays, uh, which is incredibly complex. So this was a year and a half of of really really uh, world class audio engineers dealing with this problem. Uh, it's not as easy as you'd think. Oh, it, uh, it, it does not sound easy to me at all. I, I'm an engineer <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, how would you even do that? I'm not yeah. an audio engineer though. So no, fair enough. these come in, in different heights, like you say, by the height of the pole. Um, are there, when you say it's 82%, are there, what kind of devices or what class of device would not work well in that? Uh, you know, what we haven't accommodated for today are, are form factors that have screens attached to them. Uh, oh, right, right. No problem for us to tackle those. Uh, they just haven't, they, we haven't had them on it. They're on our product roadmap today, mm -hmm. but they're not in, they're not in the queue. We thought we would start with, you know, really the biggest chunk of the problem that people have, which are these tens of millions of devices that are in homes already today that we can instantly solve, uh, which, which by the way, you know, we're shipping these in January. So we're not, uh, this isn't an idea that we had. Uh, we have manufacturing lined up. We're ready to go. We've actually purchased a, a, a year's worth of forward components, including processors, which are incredibly hard to come by. Oh, so wow. we made some pretty serious com financial commitments to make sure that we can supply the demand that we think the market's going to have for this product. Wow, that that was that was certainly smart. So now that's specifically for uh, smart speakers, but we've also got a problem of. Uh, our phones are listening too. whether we think, you know, you're thinking, oh, uh, I would never allow an Amazon Echo into my home. And then your phone is sitting there with an open microphone. Uh, you have a solution for that as well, correct? Yeah, we sure do. We actually have uh, a number of solutions. The core technology that I talked about that we use in Posio Shield, which protects your smart speaker, we've applied to uh, smartphones. We've done it um, for the consumer market and the commercial market. Starting with consumers, uh, we've, we've got three versions of that. All of these versions, really, they look like an induction charger with a ring that goes around the phone. So effectively, a, a kind of a, ho a hollow looking ring. Uh, if you think of a Dyson fan as an example, but a much, much smaller version of that kind of hollow <laughs> fan concept. But like an easel charger that you would yeah, set your phone right. down into, but it's got this, this thick ring around it, correct? You got it. Exactly. And so it's a, you know, it sits at about 27 degrees or something like that. And, and it has an induction charger because we know you need to charge your phone. We're not, we're not savages. So we'll <laughs> help you out there on the same footprint as an induction charger. And so you've got instantly, you've got uh, charging going on and you've got uh, blocking. Same thing. The second you put your phone in there, uh, we have tested a hundred percent of the phones that we put, have seen on the market 
If you put it in there, it's blocked. We've, we've got this one really, really screwed down. So um, we don't even have, we, there's no drop on our website. You'll see a drop down for compatible devices with shield because uh, we don't want somebody buying one and being disappointed that it doesn't work. Our drop down device uh, for Posio Cradle, which is our consumer device, is very simple. All smartphones on the market. Nice. But you and did the so, drop down anyway, just so people, because people are going to ask the question. Well, that just rolled off. I think we too. I think we should just to be cute. But oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you you know people are going to wonder. Well, but does my phone work? I would totally do it and go. Yes, we really mean all. <laughs> yeah, maybe the drop down is just yes. I like that a lot. <laughs> I'll, I'll mention that to the marketing folks. So um, yeah, once you put your pro- your phone in there, you're getting a charge and you're being blocked. Uh, your phone's being blocked. So again, same interaction. You know, hey Karen, you know, call your smartphone from a smartphone, whatever you like. Hey, 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 it can't hear you. Pause your stop. Hey, what's the weather? Hey, play John Lennon, whatever you want. And, and off it goes. Pardon me. The, uh, there's three versions of that. We have one called block. One's block and talk. One's block, talk and rock. You can probably guess what those all mean. Block would be one that we would recommend for a child's room or a youngster's room. And you have, say, by the bedside table, you put it there and you know that it's just blocking perpetually. You can't even accidentally trip Pazio to open up. So, uh, it's fully blocked uh, all the time, 100% of the time. The second version, block and talk, allows you to interact exactly as you did the way we described. Hey, or say, pause you, stop. Hey, Karen, interact. The third one, which we're really excited about, is uh, uh, adds one more layer of, of uh, solution to for consumers, which is we integrated a very, very high quality smart speaker. Uh, speaker pardon me. So oh. now with your phone as the engine or the brain, because that's really your smart device sitting on Pazio's cradle, You've got an induction charger, blocking, and a high-quality speaker all in the same footprint you'd have for your induction charger. So, you know, we think an incredible proposition for consumers that they don't have to miss a beat. They actually save space. Uh, They don't have to have multiple devices uh, on their counter or their bedside. And uh, they're getting all the convenience and function of their smart device, plus this added layer of, of protection, which we think is just fantastic. That is a really great idea to have that third option. Um... Wow, and I like the idea of blocking for kids. Yeah, uh, we're we're actually uh, integrating uh, in. I uh, as, soon as I'm not. I should be checking this. We're working <laughs> on uh, integrating some form of uh, cover for the camera as well, uh, so that oh, yeah. it's basically it looks like a, a. It's a soft stick on the side that's magnetic. You just slide it over the top, and it blocks the camera. So you've got your camera and your uh, audio blocked completely, but you've got. But again, you can interact, you can still text, you can still see your phone, you can watch Netflix, you can do whatever you want on your phone while it's in there. Um, but but knowing that you're perfectly safe and no one can see or hear you. Yeah, yeah. So now with Shield, you have to have different sizes because obviously a tall Echo and, a, and an Echo Dot are two totally different sizes. You need different sizes. But for the phones, you only have to have this one form factor? That's correct. Okay. Okay, cool. So you aren't like pointing something right into a microphone where you know it is. That's that shaping of the of the sound around it that's the magic. Yeah, so, that's absolutely right. Yeah, we've we've got a number of things going on on the phones that make it so so incredibly effective. But as you said, uh, we'll 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 keep a little bit quiet on that because there's all kinds of patents pending there. So yeah, well, excited. I would bet, I would bet that does sound like the secret sauce. So uh, when we look at Block, Block does not the Block version of the cradle for the phone does not have like the little white ring because it would never allow that, right? Correct. Okay. So now um, you've got a, a, a business option that I also thought was really interesting. I worked in a uh, defense contractor where 
I mean, when they first came out with uh, Blackberries that had uh, video cameras and, and microphones, the, I mean, well, they had microphones as the phone, but video cameras, they were, I mean, they lost their ever-loving minds. They said, no, you can never have this. We will never allow these in the company. But of course they had to. So uh, you've got a solution for companies that don't want people's devices listing, right? We sure do. Um, you know, if we're speaking to businesses at this stage, what I've, what I've been saying is what we've been trying to do is awkwardly solve a three-dimensional problem with a two-dimensional solution. Policy and procedure and compliance, you can't run them on human behavior and say, hey, if you're in a meeting, put your phone here, or if you're going to do this, maybe put it, put it in a box or unplug it. You can do you that, just not successfully with, exactly. with human it, it, behavior. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you certainly can and should write policy as best you can and look for compliance and enforcement. Having said that, when you don't provide a practical tool to actually execute on those things, it's very, very difficult to get people to remember or to actually act on those things uh, for all kinds of reasons. And again, human behavior being the simplest answer. So what we've done is we've built this tool that now allows you to write a very short policy, which is if you're at your desk, your your mobile device needs to be sitting on a, a listening blocker, which is what Posio is. And so um, that, again, the default state of the commercial product will be to sit and do really what the child's room one does. But this one will have uh, layers and layers of certification FIPS, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and, and other certification that basically allow us to sell right into military government uh, banking systems where they can rest assured that the, uh, the testing and compliance on the product itself 100% does what it does, says 100% of the time. We've, we've got two, uh, really, well, it's one version of this, uh, but what we've done that's unique uh, with Vault, which is the commercial version, is all of those are actually sitting on their own induction charger, and, and our unit, our Posio Vault, has a battery on board. So if you're in a meeting room and you sit down, you'd have a little sign beside this, these sets of devices, or you could have somebody say at the beginning of the meeting, hey, folks, there's a, an induction charging plate you see on the middle of the table. There's maybe six of our devices sitting on there. They're all charging in a, in a six-person meeting room. Each person grabs one of the devices. Please drop your phone on there. Rest assured, all it's doing is blocking the mics so that no one here can accidentally or intentionally be recording the meeting if you need privacy and confidentiality. The good news is you don't have to ask people to part with their phones. And, you've got to, and so it's being blocked. There's no voice interaction. So again, you can't accidentally trip Posio into not listening and then accidentally trip uh, you know, the smart device into hearing. And so uh, you, you've really got a very secure way of allowing people to still be in a meeting, get their phone charged, which is fantastic because who, who on the road doesn't always need their phone charged running around in meetings. It's a constant battle. There's no, it's all wire, like, sorry, wireless charging. There are no <laughs> wireless chips to be very clear. And, and the participant in the meeting can actually still see their phone. So if there's notes that they need or they need to text or what have you, or see missed calls, emails, they can still interact with their phone as they normally would, but while it's being charged and it's being blocked. Uh, and there's a visual cue for everyone in the room. That is that at the bottom of this, there's a slot, a soft white light, a ring around the bottom that uh, will, will migrate to yellow and red if the battery is dying or if somebody removes their phone or just shifts it off or pushes it askew in a way that Posio can't block it. You'll get a visual cue that, hey, Joe, could you please put your phone back on there? Because this is a confidential meeting. So is, um, if white is, uh, means it is being blocked? Correct. Okay. Yeah. 
and a very soft indication. It's, it's more about knowing that it's not. So when the phone's pulled away or the battery is on its way out, that's when you're going to get a red indicator. And it'll be very clear to everybody that, hey, <laughs> something's wrong over there. We need to chart. We need to get that back on the charger. Oh, OK. But, so if, you know, if, that, if my particular vault is turning yellow, you would it, we'd make sure we put it back on the induction plate so that uh, it, it, it would be charged so that it would continue to do its job. Because red would mean I'm not working. Karen's Karen's gone to sleep now. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Actually, but, no, you know, Karen's, are, still, I, Karen's I, awake. <laughs> it's Pazio that's, exactly. has gone to sleep. Pazio's <laughs> going to sleep. And so, you know, the, the, the battery life on these is going to be quite extensive. Um, and, you know, we'll be using Qi uh, charging uh, against these. But um, uh, so we're, we're not too, we're not particularly worried, but we thought it'd be important to, again, make sure that people know that Pazio is actually doing its job. They need a visual cue. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know what they're going to ask for next is some way to carry it around in a device that is doing that for them, right? A, a smart case that uh, that yes. has the uh, has the uh, jamming in it. Because I, I'm picturing, in a, for a cl- example, a classified program, you can't bring right. phones in at all. You have to stick them in Correct. a cubbyhole outside. But if you could carry it in, but you, there's that time from when you walk in the door until you set it in your cradle that that you're now they still wouldn't allow that. But for confidential meetings, for uh, company proprietary and other discussions that are maybe not classified, I could see that that would this could this could be game changing. Plus, who doesn't like to have their phone charged? Well, I think that's just it. I, you know, it's it'd be one thing to say to go into a meeting and say, hey, we've got induction charges for everybody. That's good. That's almost good enough. Mm-hmm. To add this layer of confidentiality to me is, is and again, that's our core value proposition. You know, we're, we're not a charging company. If you want a charger, you can go anywhere and buy them and people can buy them for meeting rooms. But uh, our starting point is is all about privacy and accidental or intentional recording uh, that we can we can actually get in the middle of and lay that, you know, lay that, la- that clear layer of protection on for folks. You know, I, I, I talk to people and ask them. Would you be at home and leave your video camera on all day on purpose on your <laughs> on your laptop? Would you would you have an ATM card and not have a pin attached to it? Would you log into your banking system at home and not have a second layer of authentication? The answer is you'd be crazy to do all those things, but we've been forced to do that with these smart devices. So we be we are really a two fat. We're very light, very much like not a perfect analogy, but very much like two factor authentication for your smart device. And, you know, we think that that's just a critical next step in the evolution of us interacting with the Internet of Things. That's very, very cool. Well, I could I could talk to you about this for hours, but uh, I'm going to have to cut you off here. Where would people go to find out more about Pazio? Yeah, go to Pazio.com. It's P-O-Z-I-O, P-O-Z-I-O.com. Uh, we're launching on Kickstarter on November 2nd. Um, you know, put your name on our mailing list, get ahead of the line. And uh, we're starting manufacturer in uh uh, late November, early December for shipping in January. Uh, and we're, yeah, we're really excited to have, uh, have a whole bunch of people join us on this journey as we, we slowly start to take our privacy back. Yeah. So, um, I'm going to say what I said to you, uh, one-on-one I've been burned by so many Kickstarters. I'm, uh, I'm just, oh, I, I'm, I'm waiting for a product right now. That's been a year and 10 months and they keep sending me letters about, oh, here's where we are in our manufacturing. You know what? We changed the name and we changed the yeah. vendor. And it's like, I feel like those things never come true. Yeah, you're not alone. Um, I've <laughs> I've been uh, I've experienced exactly what you're talking about. Um, what we've done is is quite reverse of that. So the you know these these ten or twelve or fifteen months that people often wait are because somebody has an idea. Maybe it's you know they've got a, sl- a small prototype. What we did is we got way ahead of this whole thing. So instead of coming to Kickstarter and saying, "Hey, can we raise some money and do this?" We put the money in, built this. We've bought prototypes. We've got engineers. We've got everything is done. 
Uh, we've got our manufacturing specs finished. They're called Gerber Docs. They've gone to over to our manufacturing partners, and our manufacturing partners are actually tooling is being built right now. So, which is the uh, the, the plastic molds are being uh, built. They're the last thing to be done. The assembly line is ready. The components are all literally sitting at our factory today, ready to be uh, assembled into the finished finished product. Pardon me. So, we when we say we're shipping in January, it's because we're actually shipping in January. Uh, there's uh, there's no no monkey business going on here. We're 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 serious about this. We mean business. And as I said to you earlier, maybe offline. I don't know if I mentioned this on the phone or on this call. Uh, we um, we actually forward purchased uh, enough components, and I won't tell you, but we've got ambitious goals including processors for a year's worth of supply. In fact, into early 2023, we've already purchased and funded uh, all of those components. So Kickstarter for us is really more of a means of getting the message out and getting people that are active and interested. That community is very interested in new technology, new everything. So we thought it'd be a great place to start and engage that really active community out of the gate. I can tell you with 100% certainty that these products will ship in January. Um, if we say it's going to ship, it's going to ship, and it's because we're ready to ship. It's not because there's some promise or idea. Uh, we've we've crossed all those bridges, and I wouldn't. Uh, I, I would. I, I guess. I guess we'll have to take me at my word on this one. But, <laughs> but that's that's how we roll. I think. I think you've had a sense of it, Allison, from talking before that we're pretty serious about this. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you have any? Do you have pricing on these yet? We do the um, the hail, uh, shield version that I talked about earlier, which is where your smart speaker sits on our little platform, uh, is one eighty nine. Uh, Cradle Block, which is the smartphone version that just blocks, is one ninety nine. Cradle Block and Talk, where you have voice interactivity, that's two twenty nine. Block Talk and Rock, which is the really exciting speaker for consumers, is two seventy nine. <laughs> okay, I was really expecting this to be the punchline where I went, oh, never mind, because it was uh, too too much. But uh, those are those are certainly reasonable prices. I mean, it, I've paid a lot more for just a smart speaker in some cases. So, yeah, we we've been told a number of times that that we're pricing too low, and it's it's been a very very uh, long debate that we had internally. Um, you know the the reality is, you know, Qi charging costs a certain amount to add to something. Uh, speakers and that integration add something to us. The 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 real focus on this is privacy, and it's that technology that we've wrapped in here. The other things are kind of incidental, but we've really, really worked hard to keep our costs down. We're doing, again, we're we're purchasing very large quantities of components, have major commitments with our manufacturers, so we've been able to keep the cost reasonable out of the gate. When and like you, I've had people say, "Well, what are you going to charge?" And I say, "What do you think?" And I've got prices from three hundred to two thousand dollars, or like this, <laughs> it, because they understand the value proposition is so so important, uh, and it's how you value privacy. But the reality is we're, we're combining how you value privacy with these other conveniences. And we just drove and drove and drove hard, hard at costs. Uh, but, but these things are built and they're built to last. We're really, really happy with them. Well, this is very good. I really appreciate your time. Uh, I, I think this is fantastic, Dave, and I wish you the best of luck. And I will uh, definitely be telling my friends and my co- previous co-workers about this. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Allison. Really great to be here. Have a great day. Well, I thought that was really, really interesting, and I've never, never heard of anything like that. So uh, I, I really hope them uh, the best of success. And I think if that's something you're interested in, want some privacy, this is going to be a great product. But this is going to wind us up for this week. You know, did you know you can email me at allison at podfeed.com anytime you like? If you have a question or a suggestion, just send it on over. I've left Facebook uh, still. So maybe it's permanent. And uh, so if you want to follow what I'm doing, Twitter is a good place to follow me online at Podfeet. 
Better yet, join our Slack community. It's a great place, podfeed.com slash Slack, because you can talk not just to me, but all of the other lovely Nocilla Castaways, and it is hopping in there. Since I left Facebook, we're getting more and more people in there, so it's be- it's becoming even more fun. Now remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You can support the show by going to podfeed.com slash Patreon or with a one-time donation at podfeed.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show like Eric did for the first time this week, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.